if you will, in Genesis chapter 9. It's been three weeks since we've been in the book of Genesis. I had a sick week and then came back to do Christmas, and Greg was here last week. And so as we look now again in Genesis chapter 9, this is the 31st message of our time together. So I said this early on, but I don't think a lot of people really heard that, but it was my intent to stop somewhere around chapter 10 or so of Genesis. And when that was restated a couple of weeks ago, my arm has been thoroughly twisted into going further into Genesis. And so that is the plan. And I don't uh, reluctantly do that. I just... I'm happy to preach whatever it is is meaningful to you. And sometimes these passages are far more academic than they appear to be application-oriented, and it's not always clear how impactful they are. So we're going to venture into this, and there will be some real challenges as we go through very lengthy narratives, but we'll tackle that as best as I know how I can. So we're looking here in Genesis chapter 9, and to do a very, very brief overview, the 50 chapters of Genesis are divided into 10 books. Each of these books are indicated by the generations of the Hebrew word Toledot. And here we are in the fourth book of the fifty of these 50 chapters looking at the generations of Noah. So we began looking at Noah's family and his life in particular. The Bible tells us that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in all his ways. He was a man who walked with God and that description only being given to him and to Enoch who was miraculously taken from this earth and did not die. We're told about Noah's world. It was thoroughly sinful. Noah stood alone as a righteous man, alone in the fact that he was blameless. Noah's world was filled with evil. We often wonder how that compares to our day today, and I don't know that there really is any difference. It seems like it maybe is a lot more public today. There's a lot more flaunting of wickedness and sin in our world today than there may have been back in Noah's day, but it is thoroughly sinful today. It was thoroughly sinful then, and the sin of disobedience that originated in the garden that we looked at in Genesis chapter 3 has spread to all mankind like a cancer for which there is absolutely no cure. In fact, in the beginning of this narrative, as we are looking at Noah's life, we read this in Genesis 6-5, God said this, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil once in a while, occasionally, only when days were hard, continually, all the time, man's heart was fixated on evil. If you think about it, going back into the Genesis, excuse me, into the garden account, where they were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they had no awareness of evil. They had no awareness of wickedness. They had no desire to participate in any such activity. But as soon as they ate and their eyes were open, they not only understood what evil was, but they began to desire it. They eventually would give themselves over to it, being totally captured by it. And as we would eventually read in Romans chapter 1, God gives mankind over to it 
to the extent that they cannot hear nor accept or respond the grace that God gives through the cross of Jesus Christ. So God speaks in the day of Noah and says that He is going to bring about judgment against the corruption that mankind has brought into the perfection of the world that God has made. And we would read this in Genesis chapter 6-7. I'm sorry I didn't make it in. Listen very closely. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is how evil man has become. And because of the covenant that God made with Noah, as we will look at as a part of this section, he will not do that again. And you and I live today because because God made a covenant back in the days of Noah that he would never again blot out man, no matter how wicked mankind became. Most certainly we are deserving of the total eradication that was experienced in the flood. But through the grace of God, God, he does not do that. God would speak again and tell Noah to build an ark that will sustain him and his sons and their wives, and he is to bring aboard the ark every living every living air-breathing creature or animal that is upon the earth. And we learned that there were two of every creature. There were seven pairs of the clean animals, although the clean animals are not identified for us. We also saw that the flood was... The flood came, the torrential rains fell, and if I remember from, if I remember correctly, um, and I don't remember correctly, it would be like being at the bottom of Niagara Falls, that amount of water was falling on every square meter of the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, so much so that the highest point of the earth was covered by approximately 20 to 25 feet of water. All air-breathing animal life on earth was drowned. This divine prerogative of God to both judge and cleanse his world is not something that God took pleasure in, but in his infinite justness, He did what he deemed necessary. Now, when we consider the attributes of God, they do not, they are not exercised individually of one another. They are exercised completely and perfectly all the time, and they are done in the infiniteness with which God possesses them. God is infinite gracious. He is infinitely mercy, merciful. He is infinitely loving. He is also infinitely just in what He does. We look at things that God does in His Word, and we say, how could God do such a thing? Well, God is infinitely just, and we can never question what He does. In His divine prerogative, He did what He did because He deemed that to be necessary. Then we looked at the floating, which is what I call the time in the ark, a little over a year, where Noah, his sons, and their wives were living, as well as all of the air-breathing creatures on the ark, a miracle beyond our understanding, but this is what took place. They awaited the arrival of the ark into the new world after God had completely cleansed the world of its corruption, and after the appointed time, the new world was was made available to Noah, his family, and all of the living kingdom. They left the safe confines of the ark. They began to venture down from Mount Ararat and to reestablish life as they would have known it prior to the flood. So upon removal of the ark, Noah's first order of business is to worship the Lord. He offers up sacrifices. He offers up a pair of 
of every clean animal. Not just an animal, a pair of every clean animal. If you think about the care that Noah and his family would have given to those animals, the consequence of sin would have been drilled very deeply into their consciousness as these animals were slain as an atonement for sin that required this drastic measure of the flood. Upon the completion of this time of sacrifice, God makes a covenant. This covenant is with Noah and with all of humanity that would follow. I don't believe this is in your sermon guide this week. It was last week. This covenant that God makes is God's self-motivated promise of an unconditional mercy throughout all of human history. No matter how wicked man would become, God would not repeat the universal flood as a means of accomplishing a new beginning. God would instead impose forgiveness as the means for a new beginning. That is incredibly important for us to understand. What God did in the flood, He was completely just in doing, but God chose to never do that again, and instead of wiping out all of what is alive as a means for a new beginning, God offers forgiveness as the means for a new beginning, and we should be incredibly grateful for that reality. So this brings us to where we are today. This new beginning that would be accomplished through forgiving, forgiveness, brought about, repent, brought about through repentance and commitment, is now going to be set in motion through the sons of Noah. So as we get to the sons of Noah, in this section of chapter 9, there's a bit of a segue from the life of Noah by highlighting the sons of Noah, which will then introduce us into the generations of the sons of Noah, which begins in the table of nations that we will read in chapter 10, which is going to be an incredibly challenging chapter to teach. I'm just telling you now, it's going to be... I'll do the best I can. So let's read together chapter 9, verses 18 through 29 as we wrap up the generations of Noah. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered their naked, covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now this is, by some accounts, 
and I'm not saying this is my account, some would read this and they'd say, wow, there's some really peculiar things in here. They're not really explained. They don't seem to make a lot of sense, but they are incredibly important. And we're going to try to bring out some of that today, and then we'll try to nail that down next week as we get into the table of nations. So God has just issued his covenant with Noah and all of human history that will follow him. And so life begins under the covering of this covenant. And this final section of book four subtly turns our attention to the sons of Noah. I'm not positive, but I think this is only the second or the third time in this narrative that the names of the sons of Noah are actually given. They are just referenced as the sons of Noah. And here we see their names again. I know in Genesis 7 they are specified as a part of this protection that is going to be theirs through the ark and the provision of the ark. So now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. So there are two main purposes here in this segue of identifying the sons of Noah and identifying what it was they were actually identified to do. So sometimes we would ask the question, why were the sons of Noah included in the salvation that was provided by the ark? They were not identified as righteous or blameless or sons that walked with God. We really don't know much about them at all. All we do know is what we're going to read following this flood narrative. So there's no mention of how much time has passed since they left the ark and offered the animals as a sacrifice on the altar, but it's very interesting that we see the mentioning of Ham's son Canaan, who we learn is the fourth son of Ham, and it indicates that a considerable amount of time has passed. When Noah and his sons and their wives and Noah's wife boarded the ark, there's no mention of any children. So it's hard for us to know how much time has passed, but here we have four sons. The fourth son is now identified, and the main purpose in identifying the sons here is seen in letter A. The sons will repopulate the earth. Now we all can correctly trace our ancestry back to Adam and back to his sons, but with the eradication of all of humankind at the flood... There is now this this problem of repopulating the earth, and that is the primary purpose for the sons of Noah. Noah and his family are the only living beings on the earth, and through the sons of Noah, human life will begin again and continue on the earth under this newly communicated covenant that God has made. So the entirety of earth's population is traced back to these three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, there is not the mentioning of a seed like there is with the seed of Cain and the seed of Abel and the seed that is going to um, crush the son and whose head will be crushed later on the seed of the woman. There's no mention of that. But what we do see is special attention being paid here to the father of Canaan and Ham. Ham will father Israel's enemy. 
So as we think about all the naming of the children throughout all of Genesis, the name Canaan might seem like it's just been pulled out of thin air. We don't know how those names came to the people that actually gave the names. But this is an indication of what future Israel is going to encounter. We see in verse 18 what appears as almost a footnote that Ham was the father of Canaan. So why was this individual child identified and not the other sons of Ham and not particularly here the other sons of these other sons of Noah, Shem and Japheth? There's a lot of questions that come into play here. A lot of this is Hebrew literary style. It is also the emphasis that is placed upon the importance of these individuals to Israel's future history. And what has been mentioned many, many times is that it is very possible and likely that Moses is writing this account during the wilderness wanderings. Think about that. So Moses, if we fast forward to Moses' present day, somewhere in the wilderness wandering, he is likely writing the account of Genesis here. Moses is telling the Israelites why the command that they are going to receive to eradicate the Canaanites has any relevancy to their lives. So if you skip this part of the Genesis narrative and you only go into Exodus and then the death of, of, of uh, Moses and the arrival of Joshua, well, why are they going to stamp out the Canaanites? Why are they the enemies of Israel? It goes all the way back to here. The enemies of Israel are birthed through Genesis chapter 9 where Ham through his fourth son Canaan, is going to be the father of Israel's enemy. The identification of Ham's offspring as Canaan prepares the Israelites of Moses' day to understand why these people are the enemies of Israel. Now, again, fast-forwarding into Moses' day, as they will eventually be on the verge of entering into the... Excuse me. As they are on the verge of ending their time in the wilderness and entering into the promised land given to them by God, they will be called upon God to eradicate the Canaanites from the land. And so Moses is connecting what took place in Genesis 9 to the wilderness wandering in the future conquering of the promised land given to Israel by God. So all throughout the Old Testament, the Canaanites are the hated enemies of Israel. This narrative introduces to us why they are Israel's enemies and why under the leadership of Joshua, God is going to call upon them to destroy the Canaanites. So in the beginning, Israel's unending conflict is going to be identified and it starts with Ham sometime after their disembarking from the ark and beginning life under this newly established covenant. So, the table of nations that we're going to look at in chapter 10 is going to provide a more detailed look at the nations that existed in Moses' day and how Shem and Ham and Japheth have shaped those nations 
So the nations are the enemies of Israel's and are eventual allies of Israel. And where all of that eventually derails as Israel is guilty of idolatry. And we'll look at that in greater detail as we go through chapter 10. So this is an introduction to the purpose of the sons of Noah. It is to repopulate the earth. And in that, in the repopulation of the earth, through the line of Ham, specifically through Canaan, Israel's enemies are going to be on the scene. So the third thing that we see here, letter C, is Noah's sin. Verses 20 and 21. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, he became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now when we read this, we kind of read this as if the next day... Moses went out and plucked a bunch of grapes and he got busy and went through the fermentation process and drank the wine and got drunk. We have no idea of how much time has passed. There's clues in that one, it would take quite a bit of time for there to be a harvest of grapes that would enable Noah to even make wine. But because we also have the identification of Ham's fourth son, Canaan, it is very plausible that a significant amount of time has passed, but we have no idea how much time? So we learn that Noah was a farmer, much like Adam was. And a part of his farm, there was a vineyard, and that vineyard produced grapes, and grape eventually produced wine. Probably not originated through Noah, probably in existence prior to the flood. But apparently that skill, that knowledge has been passed on. And so Noah has made some wine. He has gotten drunk on that wine. And he is now passed out in his tent naked. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody who has passed out from their drunkenness, but they are sprawled out on the floor, they're oblivious to their surroundings, and it appears that something happened before Noah fell flat on his back, where he disrobed himself, and he is in this state of shame, being drunk and being passed out naked in his tent. So some argue that Noah was unaware of the impact of this fermented drink. That's highly unlikely. We don't know why Noah got drunk. We don't know what was going on. We don't know if he and the wife were having a really bad spell and they'd been fighting all day. We don't know if the kids were driving him nuts and the grandkids were more than he can handle. And he'd been babysitting them all day long and he said, I just need to get drunk on some wine. We have no idea. It just isn't addressed. It's purely speculation as to why Noah got drunk. It seems the sin of drunkenness which is the future stated restriction for wine, is somehow, someway being highlighted here because the potential shame that comes from nakedness is realized in the life of Noah. We don't really know all of what is woven into this, but we should be very, very careful to not place too much emphasis on the fact that Noah was drunk Noah's drunkenness and the shame of his being naked provides the occasion that comes from Noah with the blessing and the curse that he's going to pass on to his children and their future generations. Noah's drunkenness and nakedness is not the reason for the blessing and the cursing. It is simply the occasion that this is going to come out in the lives of his children. It wasn't Noah's sin that brought the blessing and the curse. It was the actions of Ham in this occasion of Noah being drunk and being found in a shameful position, passed out naked in his tent. 
So this event provides the opportunity to expose the true nature of his three sons. Apparently Noah is so drunk that he has disrobed himself, he's flat on his back, passed out on his tent, and that introduces us in the letter D, Ham's sin. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, again the highlight here, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now this verse has a ton of speculation supplied to it. There just isn't any detail provided. There's a lot of questions that flow from this, and many of these scholars and commentators have argued about for generations. Why is it said this way? Was there something else that took place that isn't stated? And we really can't run down the rabbit hole of speculation and come to conclusions that the text just cannot support. That is first and foremost as we go through this. So while there is a lot of speculation as to what actually happened here with Ham and why the actions brought about the eventual curse against Canaan, the fourth son, we really can't say for sure. But some contend, and this is one of the more prominent ideas, some contend that there was potentially some kind of a homosexual act between Ham and his father, especially in what we will see in verse 25 when it says what Ham had done to him. So there are scholars and commentators, there are rabbis that have looked at this, and they've argued back and forth, and they've tried to fill in a lot of gaps that just aren't able to be filled in. But what we find here in the Hebrew text is the word saw... And that word really eliminates the plausibility that there is a homosexual act implied here. If it were a sexual act, the Hebrew would say to lie with, or some variation of, Ham laid with his father, where it is said in many other places throughout the Old Testament text. There's nothing like that here. All we have is the Hebrew word, saw. Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Now, some would argue that, who believe that this is a masked homosexual act that somewhere along the line the text had been altered to eliminate the, the possibility of there being any kind of an interpretation that would indicate some kind of a homosexual or some kind of a sexual act between Ham and his father. Again, a lot of speculation. We can't really say All we can really do is look at what the text says and agree that it isn't very clear, it doesn't provide a lot of detail, and then we have to be comfortable with saying, I don't know. I don't know. I can't run down the rabbit hole of what if and what about and what might have happened. We just can't do that because the text will not support those conclusions. Now, the other seemingly significant part of this consideration is that Ham castrated Noah for this indiscretion, which they believe is supported by the fact that Noah didn't have any more children, only the three that are identified in Scripture. Well, again, the text doesn't say, it doesn't imply, it doesn't leave a lot of room for that kind of interpretation. Again, it just says that Ham came in and saw the nakedness of his father. Now, this is a weak argument because Noah's sons were already married And it's likely that Noah's childbearing 
had, had childbearing was completed based upon the sovereign plan of God for the population of the earth to come through these three sons, we would also wonder why there isn't mentioning of Shem and Japheth being shocked at what they found when they went into the tent with their father potentially bleeding out from a castration. I mean, medicine has always been pretty primitive, most especially in the ancient days. So if Ham were to have castrated his father, how would they have dealt with that? What would they have done? I don't know. So it seems pretty unlikely that that is one of the options that we should entertain here. All we can say is what Ham came in and found was his father drunk, flat on his black, on his back, exposed in his nakedness, and that was a shameful thing. There aren't any details provided. We can only go by what the text says. The most likely, likely option is that Ham saw his father flat on his back, drunk, his nakedness being exposed, and in the moment of Noah's shame, rather than honoring him and attempting to preserve his honor, Ham turns to his brothers and apparently mocks the condition that he has found his father in. You can imagine Noah, or excuse me, Ham coming out of the tent and laughing, saying, Get a load of this! The old man has passed out on his back and he's naked as a jaybird. I've never seen anything so funny in my life. <laughs> well, that's a very dishonorable way of dealing with your father's moment of shame. Now, going back and looking at what the scripture says about Noah, he was righteous, he was blameless in his day, and he walked with God. Something happened that brought about this drunkenness and this passing out, and rather than preserving the honor of his father, Ham shone the light on that and mocked it and brought his brothers into the tent for the purpose of sharing in the mockery of their father. You can imagine in our modern culture with cameras on every phone, with innumerable social media options in front of us, that this indiscretion would be videoed, it would be photoed, and it would be uploaded for all the world to see. Isn't that a disgraceful thing to do to someone in their moment of shame, to make it public and to bring greater dishonor upon them? In a sense, in a way I think we could identify with that, this is what Ham has done. We don't know how many children, how many, excuse me, we don't have any grandchildren are running around, great-grandchildren to the fourth generation. We don't know who all would potentially have been exposed to this moment of shame, but Ham did the wrong thing and brought his brothers in to try to share in the mockery. So what we don't recognize is the fact that nakedness was a very, very shameful thing in Hebrew culture. Upon Adam and Eve's sin, what did we learn? They recognized that they were naked and what? They were ashamed. Now, there's nothing shameful about a married couple being naked together. It is their awareness, it is all of the knowledge of evil that gets introduced to that. And so, that is carried through within Israel culture, Hebrew culture, ancient culture, that nakedness was something to be shunned. It was something that was shameful. In later Israeli culture, nakedness was associated with public misconduct. 
and giving instructions to the priests and how they were to administer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. We would read this in Exodus 28.42. You shall make for them, the priests, linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. They shall reach from the loins even to the thighs. The most unthinkable thing that could happen to a priest is that in his act of service to the Lord that some part of his under undergarment body would be exposed as he climbed, as he did his act of service, as he knelt, as he bowed down. So there was great measures taken to not have the shame of nakedness a part of this religious act of worship. In the ancient world, insulting your, your parents, especially the father, was punishable by death. So in the fifth commandment that we would read that comes from Moses, it communicates this idea and it in fact is the first commandment that governs human relationships. Exodus 20.12 Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Ham did not do this. He did the opposite. He exposed the shame of his father and he ridiculed it. So the likely idea here is that Ham is making a mockery of this moment of shame for his father. He brings his brothers in to share in this mockery. But when Shem and Japheth hear this, we see their honor. They want nothing to do with dishonoring their father. They want, they don't want to bring any ridicule to their father. Instead, what we read in verse 23, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so they did not see their father's nakedness. So in contrast to the actions of Ham, the brothers did the honorable thing and went in and covered their father. You'll note they went to great lengths to not dishonor their father. They walked in backwards. They used the covering to shield their eyes, holding it up high, turning their faces away, walking in and covering the father. They didn't even want to accidentally see something that would bring shame to Noah, their father. They were honorable, Ham was not. They protected the honor of their father, Ham did not. The seemingly insignificant action simply exposes the nature of the three sons. And what we see from the exposure of this Heart is going to be the future repercussions and how that's going to be lived out as we look at the table of nations. Now, what I will say very, very quickly is that the table of nations is a picture of the world that Moses and the Israelites live in in the days of the wilderness wandering, the world that they are eventually going to go into. And so that's important as we look at this and as we look at this prayer that is going to come from Noah here. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. We're not told how Noah learned what happened to him. It would be logical to assume that Noah asked some questions, somewhat aware of what happened, and his sons provided the answers. And so from this inquiry, from Noah to his sons, we are going to hear the only words of Noah recorded in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? This man who was righteous and blameless and walked with God, this is all that is recorded in the Bible spoken by Noah. These words are really a request to the Lord 
as opposed to a specific prophecy from the Lord. I think this makes a lot of sense for us to understand it this way as you look at the table of nations. Because Noah is not prophesying who is going to come from his children and their children's children. He's simply going to recount for the current nation of Israel who these nations are and where they came from. So this is most apparent in verses 26 and 27 as we look at the curse and the blessing that is going to come. So the first thing we see here, letter I, is the curse. Noah is made aware of the disgrace brought to him by his son Ham. And this is what he says in verse 25. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Now as we look at this, there's a lot of questions. Why Canaan and why not Ham? We don't really know. This text doesn't tell us why such a severe response, this curse, and such a seemingly insignificant insignificant event. Why punish Canaan's offspring and not Ham himself? Well, you and I, as we read through this, we tend to categorize sin as serious and not so serious. Don't we do that? Well, he's a really, really wicked, sinful guy. He cheats on his spouse, and he cheats on his taxes, and he beats his kids, and he does all these things. Well, yes, he's not so bad. I'm sure he tells little white lies, but it's for the good of those he's lying to, right? He's trying to protect them. So we have a way of categorizing sin, but that's really not the way it is. Sin is sin. And although there are significant, more significant consequences to sin, murder brings about a greater consequence than does lying to someone. But sin is sin. All of it is serious. But we don't understand all the detail as to why the repercussions that are, that are going to come to Canaan as a result of this are being prayed for by Noah. So as far as, well, God doesn't see this this uh, distinction of seriousness of sin. It's all serious. And as far as the punishment to Canaan and not to Ham, there really isn't any easy answer. Since the children of Shem and Japheth and Ham are not yet listed, even though they probably do exist, we assume that they hadn't been born yet. That's probably a faulty assumption based upon the identification of the fourth son to Ham, Canaan. But this is a part of the Hebrew literary style which doesn't always flow chronologically. It isn't Moses' point to give a detailed chronology just as we look back at the chronology of Seth. The fourth son of Ham, Canaan, has already been mentioned and it's probable that Noah saw something in Canaan that was very much like what he saw in Ham. There is this similar dishonorable trait I don't really know. It is possible that this is what Noah has seen in Ham and knows and is praying for the consequence of this shameful act to then be dealt with way, way down the road. There's also the principle that the consequence of sin will be experienced in future generations. So we're well aware of this. In Deuteronomy 5.9, for example, it says, as it relates to idolatry, you shall not worship them, false idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So what is more likely is that Canaan is going to have the same disregard for Noah and for Noah's God that Ham has 
And this is going to be experienced through the generations that are going to flow from Canaan. Canaan is cursed and will be seen as a servant to his brothers. And that is why as the nation of Israel enters into the promised land, they are going to fight and fight to eradicate the Canaanites. Again, Moses is preparing modern Israel for the enemies that they will face when they enter the promised land. Now, the second part of the prayer here is found in a blessing. And I'm going to go through this very, very quickly because this will be unearthed in more detail as we go through the table of nations. Verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. You'll notice here that Ham, excuse me, Noah is not praying to the Lord specifically for the, or excuse me, this is not God speaking in terms of a prophecy. It's simply Noah offering up a praise to God, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Shem gets the first and higher blessing as the firstborn, and Canaan is going to be his servant. It is noted that the Lord is the God of Shem, unlike his brother Ham, and here Noah praises the God of Shem as he prays that Canaan would become the servant of Shem. This blessing continues in verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The extension of or the enlargement of Japheth is found in the shelter the tents of Shem that Shem himself will provide, presumably found in Japheth's God, And again, Canaan will be his servant. Now, what we will see as we look at the table of nations and as you trace out Shem's line and you trace out Ham's line, there isn't a ton of detail given to Japheth's line. And it is thought to mean that the line of Japheth is going to eventually be found in Western European nations who would then make up the Gentile world that is going to respond to faith in Christ, and we're going to look at that as we look at it next week, but it's a very interesting interesting segment of what we see in the blessing of the line of Shem and the blessing of the line of Japheth, that the tent of, of Shem is going to provide some security for the line of Japheth that is going to come in much, much further generation down the road. Now, this is a very basic introduction into the table of nations that is found in chapter 10. It is a segue into what is going to introduce Israel to her enemies. And the section here closes very simply with Noah's death. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. And so the book of generations of Noah comes to a close. So when we look at an individual section of Scripture like we've looked at today, it's very easy for us to lose the context of where this passage fits within the greater narrative. And in this book of Noah, the generations of Noah, we see the love of God, we see the provision of God, we see the salvation made available to a very sinful mankind. And as we look at this little section, it's a little bit more difficult to find that. But what we do know is this. It is very clear that even though God cleansed the world from the corruption brought into it by man, sin has not been eradicated. It is alive and well. And the reality of that is going to be 
placed upon the table of nations and the enemies of Israel that Moses is going to introduce the nation of Israel to in these wilderness wanderings. It's a fascinating study, as I've said many, many, many times. There's no way you could say everything you need to or should say about any particular passage. But as we close the book here on the generations of Noah, we're mindful of the reality that Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with God, but he was really no less deserving of death than anybody else. Why? Because he was not perfect. That is the standard for being acceptable to God. There is none who are perfect except the one who would eventually come as a propitiation for sin. The one who would also, in a similar way, like the flood, be the extinction of all the unjust who have not turned to faith in Christ and be a point of salvation for all who have come to know God through faith in Christ. It's an amazing parallel and it's filled with all kinds of interesting motifs, all kinds of foreshadowing. But God is good and He is always faithful. And as we begin to go further into the book of Genesis, we're going to see how alive and well sin really is in the lives of those who have seen a great provision from God through being spared in the flood. Would you join me in prayer, please?